This interview was recorded on May 27th, 2021. I'm Len Epp from LeanPub, and in this episode of the Front Matter podcast, I'll be interviewing Bruno Lawaji. Based in Ghent, Bruno is the original developer of iText, an open-source PDF library, and co-founder of the iText group of companies. You can follow him on Twitter at Bruno1970, and check out his website at lawaji.com. Bruno is the author of the book Entrepreneur, Building a Multi-Million Dollar Business with Open-Source Software. In the book, he talks about being a developer and technical founder and the long road to taking a company from startup to a multi-million dollar exit. You can find the book on LeanPub and elsewhere, including the website entrepreneur.lawaji.com and the Twitter account for the book is Entrepreneur21. In this interview, we're going to talk about Bruno's background and career, professional interests, his book, and at the end, we'll talk a little bit about his experience self-publishing a book. So thank you very much, Bruno, for being on the LeanPub Front Matter podcast. Thank you for having me. Um, I always like to uh, start these interviews by talking to people about their origin story. And so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about where you grew up and how you found yourself getting interested in computers and programming. Uh, I grew up in the west of Flanders. It's like where all the peasants lived. So in, in Belgium, they look a li little bit down on us. But um, I, look, I, I, I grew up in Ypres. Ypres is a, a city that people could know from the World War. So uh, in World War I, it was completely raised to the ground. Um, and it's a small village. So if you would ask me about my first computer, I had to go to a city near Ghent uh, to, to buy the first computer. And I got my first computer at the age of 12. Today, that's normal, but I was 12 in 1982. And it, I, was a, I was the only person I knew who had a computer. Um, how did I come to come into getting a computer? Well, um, my parents had friends, and so it was a couple. And the husband of that couple, he wanted to study computer programming in a neighboring city. And his wife didn't want him to go alone, <laughs> so she needed a chaperone, and she needed a, a, trust, a trustworthy person to to accompany her husband. And my father was such a trustworthy, uh, trustworthy chaperone. And so my father, he took computer classes, although he wasn't really interested in, in the computer classes, but he brought home all his textbooks and that really interested me. And so he had to do homework and to do the homework, we needed the computer. So he bought the computer and I made his homework. And so that's how I, I made my first programs. Uh, it was on a Texas Instruments 1994A, so it could only save programs on a, on a cassette on, on cassette tape. So it's before floppy disks, and um, well, that that failed more often than it worked. And soon I soon that home computer. They didn't talk about a PC yet. It, it was a home computer. Uh, it was like I, I I I hit my limits very fast. So. Two years later, um, I bought a Texas, uh, uh, no, sorry, a TRS-80, so from Tandy Radio Shack. That was my first portable, but it was more luggable because it was bigger than my mother's sewing machine. Um, it didn't have a hard, disk, a hard disk. It could have a hard disk, but it didn't have a hard disk. But it had uh, two of those large floppy disk drives, so the, 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 the bigger floppy disks. And uh, that's when I really started making yeah so I, I even had my first small business with that computer uh, i wrote my own database system and um, i took all the addresses 
of cultural or organizations in, in, in Ypres. Uh, so my father, he volunteered as a secretary of like uh, uh, the city council. And I went to all these organizations asking them for the lists with all their members and the, their addresses. Today, this would be like invasion of privacy. We, are go we aren't going to share those addresses. But I was 14, 15 years old, so they didn't see any harm in it. And so I put all these addresses in my computer and I returned the addresses with a printed, uh, with printed address labels. And so the year was 1984, 1985, when they wanted to send out a mailing, they had to manually write all the addresses and suddenly they could use pre-printed address labels. So I gave the first stack away for free and then they came knocking on my door and they said, hey, Bruno, that was really <laughs> interesting what you did there. Can we, can we get some more address labels? And then I said, yeah, you could, but I have to buy these address labels. So uh, would you pay for these address labels? And that, that's my first business. And I also consider that my first failure because the address labels I sold never uh, made up for the, the cost of my computer. But it was a, it was a nice experience. Yeah, thank you very much for sharing that. It's it's uh, it's so interesting um, because so many of the guests on our podcast are um, people who are you know are are programmers or were programmers. It's become a little bit of a time capsule of uh, and and you know someone's experience uh, differs greatly depending on on sort of when they got going. And I've interviewed quite a few people for whom their first experience, you know, making money was as as a teenager, uh, because they were the one who knew how the computer went and knew what it could do. Um, and there is to some to some extent still to this day a bit of a legacy of associating computers with with children for some reason. Um, I don't really know. But one thing I want to ask you about, actually, you have a great line in your book where you say, um, I was born in 1970 in a small Belgian city called Ypres. Uh, being normal was a moral duty in that time and place. Um, so I was born in a city called Regina uh, in, Sas in the province of Saskatchewan in Canada, also kind of looked down upon by people from the rest of the country. And that line about being normal was a moral duty in that time of place reminded me a lot about my experience growing up in a kind of, you know, remote place. Yeah, yeah. You, yeah, it, it was just in that time and age, it was like, if you were different, yeah, people couldn't couldn't deal with people who are different. And so I kept very low profile, but I couldn't hide my, my interest in computers and computers were like my safe place. And, and you, if you've read the first chapter, you see that uh, I, I gave my computer, computer a name and at some point that was my best friend, which is sad in hindsight, but it was like that. Depending on where you grew up, that could have potentially been the best friend around. <laughs> Um, uh, yeah, but anyway, yeah, no, thanks, thanks for, thanks for sharing that. It's, it is, it is a really curious thing. And I think particularly in kind of the connected world that we're in now, it's, it's a little bit difficult to kind of get yourself back into the, what it was really like, you know, pre-internet when like long distance calling was unaffordable, what it was like to be, um, unusual in the place yeah. where you, where you grew up and like where I grew up, like you were considered pretentious if you went to the Irish bar. And I'm, I'm not joking, you know, and so, you know, the, the pressure to be normal and like the, the sort of extremely limited range of things that you're kind of allowed to do without, you know. And, and books really helped because you went to the library and then suddenly you read a book and you said, is this for real? Is, is, is this 
is this fiction or, or or is this non-fiction are people like do the are there people who exist like that <laughs> and so that that was like uh, uh, in the coming of age that was like that was also when i started rebelling against like my parents and puberty and stuff like that that was because of reading books and seeing hey what people tell me and what i learn in school uh, there's a, a world outside yeah, yeah, and that world. I mean, actually, just just not to dwell on this particular feature of of the book too much, but you did you did mention that you know you got the Tandy computer because that's what Radio Shack had, um, <laughs> and and that specifically with respect to books as well. That reminds me of my you know a little bit of my experience growing up too, where like the books available were the books in, that the person who owned the local bookstore stocked the shelves with. That was those were the books. <laughs> there was really, I mean, you could, if you were really resourceful and you had money and catalogs and stuff like that, or, or you asked, you could find more, but you know, this idea of like, you know, the only thing you can get is what the sort of local shopkeeper makes available was also, uh, I, in my mind anyway, like I was, I was glad to relate to that as a sort of time, you know, that we're past now. Um, and so eventually you made your way to university and I don't believe you studied, um, computer science or anything like that. No, I studied civil engineering architecture. So um, if you have kids or in that at that time, in any case, if you had kids, you wanted them to be one out of two things. Either you wanted them to be a doctor or a civil engineer. So uh, in, in the Big Bang Theory, Sheldon always looks down on the engineers, but civil engineering is supposed to be very difficult. And so uh, that wasn't my first choice. So when I started rebelling, I went to arts to art school, so evening school. Uh, I, I painted, and I wanted to go. I wanted to be a painter, but my parents said, "Well, you should do the the entrance exam, so to be admitted to the civil engineering faculty." Uh, and I did this as a favor to them, but I passed the exam for, uh, like at the first try. And then they said, "Well, now that you've passed the exam, why wouldn't you do these studies?" So I I started doing these studies. And well, I can't say I was a good student because in, in high school, I never had to study. So, I mean, I, 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 when there were examinations, yeah, I, I, I stopped early and I, I, I did the examinations and I passed without any problems. But that was a big problem once I went to the university because if you don't study at the university, you fail. And um, so, but I found a partner in crime. So there was another girl there, Ingeborg Huella. And uh, well, we got, we, we became friends and today I'm still married to her. So, so uh, uh, together we kind of helped each other through our studies. And was it, was it around that time when you went to university that you really got into movies? Um, yeah, so in Ypres, we didn't have, we, we had a, a small movie theater and it had, uh, uh, for instance, when E.T. came out, the, the movie Extraterrestrial, the movie theater in Ypres was, this is the last chance to seeing this movie in the movie theaters because it was two years after it came out. So we, we always got, got the, the last chance to, to see a, a movie. Uh, and so when I went to college, it was in Ghent. And uh, yeah, you, you, you live on your own. So uh, you're away from your parents. And, and it's a whole world that opens. And, and in Ghent, we had three movie theaters. Uh, so all the, an abundance of choice. And that's also, that was also, uh, 
why my wife and I we connected because yeah we 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 were both into movies. And uh, and so eventually you did start studying and you graduated. Um, and then uh, you talk you talk a little bit about how uh, your first your you in your first couple of years of, in your sort of working career you cycled through a few jobs. Yeah. So I didn't study computer science, uh, but when I started looking for a job, by the time I graduated, I was I was totally uninterested in what I had studied. So I was not interested in constructional engineering. I was not interested, well, I was interested in architecture, but I knew that uh, I would never be the best architect. So, so if you're only mediocre, why start a career in, 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 in something that you know that you're not going to succeed or, or you, you'll be unhappy in your career? So I was fortunate enough that I could uh, go into like a training program that was something from the, un the unemployment service in Belgium uh, started experimenting with like internships. And so I was accepted in an internship that took one year. Five years was like uh, people teaching us like uh, C, C++, uh, all kinds of uh, uh, GIS, so geographical information system software. So five months teaching and then seven months internship and so unpaid internship which is kind of exceptional in Belgium that you would do an unpaid internship but that that was like experimenting with it and so during my internship I had two assignments one assignment was uh, teaching the next batch of students and so for instance uh, that was in 1996 and uh, Java was very so the, pro the, the computer pro the programming language Java was still very young because Java uh, exists since 95. But I, I was very interested in Java because I saw this as like very different, so a huge step forward uh, in, in programming. And uh, I said, well, I'm going to teach the next batch of students Java. And so that's how I got to know the programming language that I would use throughout the rest of my career. And the second uh, assignment was um, we didn't have internet over the cable network back then in Belgium, but uh, different, like different stakeholders were uh, trying different uh, projects. And uh, the the how do you say that the facilities management company, like the the, the company that uh, you buy electricity from, they had two. Uh, test setups, one in Mechelen, that's near Antwerp, and one in Russelaar, that's in the west of Flanders, that's not so, so far from Ypres. And they knew that the one in Mechelen was like an all cable uh, solution, so upstream and downstream was uh, on, uh, over a cable network. In Russelaar, it was like a hybrid system where the upstream uh, traffic went over the, the regular phone line, like with the modems but the downstream traffic went over the cable. And so we knew that the feasibility study of this project was, was negative. So a hybrid, so we also know in hindsight now that hybrid network, a hybrid solution doesn't work. So why would you occupy your, your regular phone line and, 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 and combine this? So we knew that this wouldn't work. And, but they had a, a budget allocated to that project. And they said, instead of putting a, a an expensive consultant on that project, we are going to make this, 
make this, this Bruno, we are going to make him coordinator of this project. We don't have to pay him anyway. And so that's how I started to learn many things about the internet in 96 and for, and for Belgium standards, that's quite early. So I was on the internet at the quite early uh, uh, stage. I've got a pair of um, related questions uh, that are sort of, you know, variants that, that often come up um, in interviews on this podcast. And the first is, um, given the way things went for you in your career, do you ever regret having studied, you know, engineering rather than computer science in, in your years in university? No, because it gave me a solid foundation. Um, so the one thing that you learn, if, if you're not a study head, and you want to pass your exams, you have to have discipline. And so I lacked the discipline before, but that's that's like one of the most important things that I learned in college. That's that's the discipline to like if you so I, I wrote a PDF library. Uh, I read the PDF reference from 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 the front from the first page to the last page and again. And so I think that if I if no one had taught me that discipline to do things like that, it would have been more difficult for me. And so also the, the tools to, to understand the language, so the scientific language and, and, and to, to be able to like the PDF reference that, that was like a, like a dictionary. And so we all know that you can't learn how to speak a language if you only have a, a dictionary, but uh, having studied engineering, that helped me uh, know how to, to work with, with, with that reference manual. And another thing, so I, I studied architectural engineering, and the architect is also the person in between the, the, the mm. person who wants to build the house and the people who actually build it. So the technical people and, and the, the people who give the assignment. And so you always have to be able to to talk a different language and to translate. So if someone wants something, you have to be able to translate it into technical terms. And if there's a problem, if, if the, the technical people notice a problem, you have to be able to translate this technical problem into normal language that the, the people who give you the assignments uh, understand. And that's something that, that also was, was uh, that's, that's one, thing, one of the things that I, I took away from my studies as a civil engineer in architecture. Yeah, thank you very much for sharing that. I was just uh, pausing for a moment because you reminded me of a friend of mine who was an engineer who told me uh, he, who um, uh, helped build tunnels. And he actually said something very, very similar to me once about what his role was, which was sort of getting these commands, um, probably from architects actually about, about what to do and then relaying in between uh, those people and their requirements and the people they had to speak up to. And then also talking to the people who actually had to like dig the hole and pour the concrete and stuff like that. And you're always in those positions, you're always translating from one sort of group to another and coordinating. Um, the related question I wanted to ask you was, um, if you were, this is kind of a tricky one, but if you were just now in North American, to put it in North American terms, graduating from high school in 2021 and you wanted a career in uh, programming, would you advise yourself knowing what you know now to study computer science in university or would you suggest you know, taking another path? Um, I'm going to 
answer a different question. Uh, do you regret not having studied computer science? <laughs> so uh, no, I don't regret that because uh, one of the reasons why I was eventually hired by my first employer was specifically because they had experience hiring computer scientists, but they noticed that the computer scientists couldn't talk to the people giving the assignment. And uh, it's much easier to teach a domain expert how to program than it is to teach someone who can program domain expertise. And so I would say um, study whatever you like, uh, but uh, the computer science, if you want to be a programmer, I'm not saying if, so my son studied uh, civil engineering too, and he knows all the ins and outs and all the, he, he could build a compiler. So if, if that's your ambition, okay, do that. But if you want to be a programmer, study something uh, like, uh, I don't know, uh, study biology or uh, study, uh, I don't know, uh, architecture, and then learn how to program on your own as a self-taught or take some courses and apply what you know of your domain expertise. So use that to, to be a better programmer and, and use your programming skills to, to kind of improve your domain expertise. I think that um, the people who are most successful are usually people who are able to combine two domains. And quite often, one of these domains is computer science or, or programming, and the other one is uh, could be law, could be biology, and so on. You've mentioned already a couple of times, and we're, we're going to get there very soon to talk about uh, you building a PDF library um, and how that, that launched you know, a, big, a big phase of, of your work. Um, but before we do that, um, over a year ago now, I started a, a, just a little segment on the podcast where I ask people, you know, because I get to, you know, fortunately, I get to interview people from all around the world. Uh, how the pandemic has affected them where they live. Um, and so I know like you would have 14 months of stories to tell probably, but if you could just, I think you're the first person from Belgium that we've had, that we've had uh, on the podcast in that time. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what your experience has been like with the pandemic there. I only had first world problems, so I can't complain about it. So I, if I would complain, it, it would be like, uh, uh, like there are people who are much worse off um, in Belgium. We were quite slow. Uh, so we were like the, the champion in number of casualties at, in the first period. But um, while there was a lot of uh, discussion, are all the people who are, whose deaths are attributed to COVID, are, did they really die of COVID or did they die with COVID? And so there was, and, and politics, it was like, uh, yeah, uh, the world thinks that we are doing, uh, we are not doing well, but uh, actually we are counting in a different way. And so, yeah, we, the, the lockdown, I mean, I have a garden, I, I have a big house and, 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 and I, I can continue writing because to write, I don't have to go to an office. So all, well, it's, it's annoying, but it's, uh, I, I really can't complain. On the other hand, um, so Belgium was slow in giving vaccines. 
So I only got my uh, invitation to get vaccinated earlier this week. And so by the end of June, I will be fully vaccinated. I have friends all over the world and many of my friends who are younger than me are already fully vaccinated. But of course, yeah, we, we can't travel anyway for now. So, but that's, so if you would ask me, what do you miss most? Uh, I miss a podium most. So being at conferences in real life, uh, traveling, I've done a couple of conferences that were purely online. So the, the virtual conferences, but that doesn't really work for me. So I, I, need, I need to see people in the audience. I need to see the people who ask questions. I, I, that, that's, that's what I miss most. Yeah, thank you very much for sharing that. Um, you, uh, you, you fall in sort of like probably, you know, about, about half of the people just specific to this podcast about half, I mean, almost everybody we, everybody we interview is involved with writing to some extent. And, and you know, a majority of the, of the guests are also programmers. So the story of, you know, professionally, um, you know, in terms of the work I do, it hasn't sort of directly affected me much is, is, is an answer a lot of people give, but there is, there is always, you know, yeah, as you, as you sort of so well put it, you know, if you, if, the, if you want to ask me what I miss, I miss this, this and that and the other thing. And, and for a lot of people being in person in conferences is actually something that they, that they've, that they've expressed. And I actually interviewed someone not too long ago who actually her job was creating conferences for HashiCorp. Um, and, uh, they had quite the transition, her team, um, when they couldn't do it anymore, and they've had to move on to digital only events. And, you know, there's things that they find exciting about that. And then there's the things that you regret as well. Um, uh, yeah, so I mentioned the PDF library. So moving on, uh, we've talked about your, your early career and experiences, but you eventually found yourself with a project um, creating this PDF library. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what a PDF library is, and just maybe in the context of the story of, of what happened there. So I worked I, I switched jobs three times in the first two years of my career, but eventually I found a job at Ghent University, so where I had studied, and I was uh, employed to rewrite the software of the student administration. Um, it used to be a Clipper application. Not many people will remember the programming language Clipper, uh, but that Clipper application was stored on a, on a floppy disk, and that floppy disk had uh, an extraction of the student database. And so professors would uh, use this floppy disk and that program, Clipper program on the disk to enter the grades of the students that they had examined, so that they, they took exams of, and uh, they would hand in the diskette and uh, an administrator would kind of read out the, the, the grades and then put them in the student database. And so we, yeah, there were a lot of problems with these diskettes, uh, virus are, like computer viruses were one of the problems, uh, but there were many other problems. And uh, so in 98, uh, we decided to make this an intranet application. So we are going to uh, move away that program from, from people's computers because it could only work on DOS. And we're going to allow people to enter grades in a browser, in, an, in, an, in a web application. And one of the things I promised was, well, if you had this Clipper ap application, you could, could print lists with students and then to, uh, to fill them out with the grades, but you could only print them on an HP printer and it couldn't be a network printer. And obviously it only worked on DOS. So I said, well, we're going to solve this. I'm going to give you PDF because PDF is a portable document format. Um, I will generate this on the server. And then no matter if you have a, 
a Windows machine or a Linux machine or uh, an iMac, uh, you will be able to see this list and print this list. So, so PDF will be the solution to your problem. I thought, well, PDF exists since 1993, Java exists since 1995. There will be a Java library around to create PDF. And when I started searching, I said, oh, I promised something that maybe I, maybe I won't be able to keep my promise because PDF in those days was pretty, pretty much something of the desktop. So people would create a document in Word or in, in, a, in a designer tool, and then they would hit a button and that program on their desktop would create a PDF. I didn't find any, uh, I, there were two libraries, but they didn't, they weren't fast enough. They, they didn't work in, in an intranet context. And so um, what I did was, well, I wanted to emancipate PDF from the desktop to the server and to give people the opportunity to create a PDF in an unattended way. So um, I need a PDF with all the students who follow my class. That's a query. Uh, well, uh, I'm not going to, to make that PDF manually. Uh, let the server create that PDF. And so as there was, was no solution that worked for me available, I had to write a PDF library myself. We could have used uh, Adobe software, but back then Adobe licensed its software at a per user basis. So if we put Adobe software on the server, we would have to pay a license for every person who visited our website. And that was just not feasible. So, but those were the, the business models of the past. And so what I did was I, I created a library. So that's something without a UI. Uh, you just uh, send data to that library and, and, and you say, well, this is what the data looks like in code. So you define the presentation with your code and out comes a PDF. And uh, the first library, the first PDF library I wrote was called RUG PDF. I know RUG, that's a, a stupid word, but uh, it was the, the abbreviation of Rex Universität Kent. So that was the abbreviation of Kent University back in those days. And um, I wrote it in six weeks. And I really hated PDF because PDF was, was it wasn't the programming language that I was familiar with. It was a very strange programming language. And after having supported my library for one year, I understood why I hated PDF. Well, PDF is not a programming language. It's a document format. And so having worked with that, uh, that uh, first PDF library that wasn't really uh, it was quick and it was written quick and dirty. It wasn't, I'm not proud of that first PDF library, but having worked with that library for more than a year, I started to understand what PDF was about. And I said, well, now that I understand PDF, I'm going to rewrite a library, a PDF library from scratch. And that's how I wrote iText. Yeah, thanks very much for that. And so just, just for the non-programmers listening, a library in this sense would probably actually be, you know, what one could think of it as a, as a program, that's sort of our set of programs that's designed to do something specific, right, in, in a particular language. Um, and it's, it's so fascinating because I think it, you said, I think you very well, you know, a lot of people might think of PDF as like, well, I type out paragraphs in Microsoft Word and then I do export as PDF. But what you're talking about is being able to basically take 
have have some data that, as you say, isn't formatted in any way whatsoever, and then be able to click a button and give a person a document. And that's actually like an incredible technical challenge. Um, you know, for example, I think, um, you know, I think you mentioned it in the book or elsewhere that I read this, that, you know, if you if you if you use your bank on if you go to online banking and you click to have your statement exported, like created as a PDF, nobody typed out your your statement somewhere. It's getting it's getting that information from a database. And it's, it's, you know, and, or when you, when you get a PDF receipt or something like that, there's actually like very complex technology behind doing what might appear to be something quite simple. Well, uh, the example I always give is uh, boarding passes. Of course, boarding passes are disappearing because people have them on their smartphone. But ITEX was very popular among airlines because they used ITEX to create a boarding pass with the QR code or the barcode. And so... This is a complex document that has a lot of information on it, and they used ITEX to make that in an automated way. And was actually that reminds me specifically, was there something about a change in accessibility yeah. regulation in the United States? Yeah. So uh, in uh, 2012, a new PDF standard was uh, released, PDF UA. That's UA's universal accessibility, and if you create a PDF that complies with the PDF UA standard. Uh, it can be consumed by the blind and the visually impaired. That means that uh, you pay a lot of attention to structure because take, for instance, take a table. Uh, sometimes in one table cell, there's like a paragraph. And then in the cell next to it, there's another paragraph. You cannot just read a table line by line because you will read the first line of the paragraph in the first uh, column, then the first line of the, in, in the second column, and so on. So you need to create the PDF in such a way that it can be read out loud in, in, in the right. So if you, for instance, if you have a newspaper with different columns, you need to know that you cannot read from, from left to right, but that you need to read the first column first. So the structure is important, but also, uh, if people have assistive technology, uh, make sure that they can navigate through the document easily. Like, uh, I want to know what's in the third row of this table, third column. So read, read that out loud. And so um, this was a huge step forward for PDF. Um, and in the, uh, in the Disabilities Act, so in, in, in the US, uh, I think in, starting in 2016, there was like uh, a law that said that it was mandatory if you put documents online in the context of government, for instance, like uh, documents issued by the government or like boarding passes, they have to be, uh, so people with visual, visual disabilities have to be able to read them. So if you distribute PDFs, they need to comply with PDF UA. And um, I was fortunate enough that uh, I followed all the, the ISO committee meetings. And so I was implementing these standards. And uh, when this law became like effective, ITEX was one of the few open, I think the only open source, uh, not the only library that supported PDF UA, but the only open source library that support uh, PDF UA. So in 2016, almost all the airlines in, in the US became a customer of IFEX. 
Yeah, so that actually gives us an opportunity for a great segue into talking about um, the decision you had to make. So here you'd made Rogue PDF, you had a, you had a job, uh, but eventually you decided to go. I mean, I, I know, I, I gather you sort of kept your job until things were relatively stable, but, but you did decide to go independent and you decided to open source iText. Um, and I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about that transition. So when I first created iText or even the first PDF library, the, the Rogue PDF, I thought, well, if I don't ask any money, I won't have any worries. Uh, so I'm going to make it open source. I have my day job, so uh, I don't need to do this for, for the money. That's, that's my hobby. But um, the more popular iText became, the more difficult it was to combine a day job and iText. Uh, people started asking questions, demanded support sometimes. So, uh, I mean, you may have 1,000 users, but the one user who always complains, that's the one user that, that, that you always see and, and that, that kind of spoils it for all the other users. And so I wrote the first book so to, to solve that problem. So um, I, I wrote two iText and action books for Manning publications. Uh, but then once the book was, was out, iText became even more popular because if people have to change, if people have to choose between software that has a book about it or software that isn't documented, they will choose a software that has a book about it. So iText became even more popular. And then after the technical questions, I started getting legal questions. So who owns iText? Can we use iText? In those days, um, open source wasn't mainstream and there were uh, companies like banks and, banks and insurance companies that had a policy that it was forbidden to use open source. And so they had concerns. Is it legal to use open source? How, 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 do we, uh, how can we use iText? Because we love iText and still be compliant with, with our policies and, and be, uh, is it, yeah, we don't want to, to be sued because there may be some, some legal issue in iText. And so I, I was, again, fortunate enough. So and, and at certain points in my career, I have been very lucky. Uh, I was lucky enough that iText was included in one of the uh, projects that was in the Eclipse program. So Eclipse was a consortium that uh, was, I think IBM started it and several other companies joined. And they had a simultaneous release in 2006, a simultaneous release of, of many different projects. And the simultaneous release, the goal was that people could download everything at one, in, in one batch and they wouldn't have to worry about compatibility, about legal issues. All, everything was vetted by IBM and the Eclipse Foundation. And so in 2006, the Callisto simultaneous release, people could download a whole suite of programs. But if they wanted to create reports in PDF, they had to download iText separately because iText uh, was yeah, IBM and the Eclipse Foundation didn't know who the owners of iText was. They didn't know, uh, they didn't have any rights on iText. So there was a lot of uh, like pressure on me to change the license of iText from the MPL, LGPL, which were like um, weak copyleft, so easy to use in a commercial context. But uh, there was some pressure on me to move to the EPL, the Eclipse public license. But if I had, if I had done that, I would have kind of, uh, IBM and the Eclipse Foundation could have appropriated iText and then they would have solved all the possible legal issues, but I would have lost iText. Well, that's how I interpreted it. 
back then. So I said, well, I'm not going to move to the EPL. And the, the lawyers at the Eclipse Foundation said well, said, well, then we have to do it the hard way. And that, that sounded very aggressive, but I, I asked, what is the hard way? And the hard way was do a complete uh, IP review of all the code. And so to, to make this happen, one of the companies in the Eclipse Foundation, Actuate, made a research agreement with my employer, Kent University. And the deliverable of this research agreement was that of IP review. So in practice, I went to work doing my job at the university, uh, getting the, the same salary as before. But uh, whenever they, there was a report from the lawyers from Canada, so IBM Canada Eclipse, they, they had the whole legal team. So they, they put the, 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 the source code through automated stuff to, to find like legal issues. There were people who read the source code line by line. And every time they found issues, they sent me a report. And then I had to drop everything at the university and fix that issue. And so it took one year. But by the Euro Europe simultaneous release in 2007, we had like a clean IPEX. And so with that clean IPEX, I was 100% sure that there were no legal liabilities. Actually, one surfaced a, bit, a little bit later, but uh, that, that was then after it's fixed. Um, and so this, this came at the same moment that I had another problem in Belgium. Um, and if you, if you do a lot of work on your hobby and your hobby almost becomes your job, like uh, you spend money on it, you do it on a regular basis, your many other people benefit from your hobby, uh, then you are considered self-employed in Belgium and probably in many other countries too. And so, uh, and then someone from the, the inspection came to my house and I, and I had to explain what I was doing. And he said, well, you're self-employed since the year 2004 uh, and you haven't paid any taxes on your self-employment. And I said, what? I, I'm a civil servant. I work for Ghent University. I'm not self-employed. Well, you're, you're, you're going to have to pay taxes anyway, and you're having you're going to have to pay a lot of interest on those taxes <laughs> that you didn't pay. And so, okay, the interests were dropped uh, eventually, but this made me realize, hey, what I'm doing here. So, I'm I I had a legal risk, and I realized that after doing the, the IP review, so there were things in ITEX that that went to the, into the code base that should never have been there. Um, I take uh, a risk that if something goes wrong, people will sue me. Uh, I, I have to pay personal taxes on, on my hobby, which are much higher than if I would have a company. So it's time to, to start a company for IFX. And so that's also what my wife had been telling me for years. Yeah, you're doing a lot of work for free. You should ask money for the work you do. And so that's how the first company came about in January 2008. But in February 2008, our son, uh, Inigo, the one who is a civil engineer now, he was diagnosed with cancer. So um, the first year in business, we all almost went bankrupt because we were more in the hospital than, than that we were at our desk. And so uh, that was like, if you ask me what's, what's your worst experience, that, that was 2008, that was the, the worst year of our lives because uh, uh, we didn't, well, I had my day job, fortunately, but we started the company. We didn't have any 
revenue for the company. Um, we had our son. We didn't know if he would survive. He's, he's fine today. So that's, that's many years ago. Um, but um, again, some luck. In 2007, I had met an American, uh, someone from San Carlos, Andrew Binstock. Um, he had read my book. He came. He had a conference in Brussels, and he said, "Well, Ghent isn't far from Brussels. Uh, I'll bring my copy of my of your book. You sign it, and I'll buy you lunch." And so we became friends. And when he saw how I was struggling uh, in 2008, he said, "I have to help you out." And so he started iTech Software Corporation in California in 2009, February 2009. And he helped me close the, the two first deals. It's not a coincidence that the deals were closed with an insurance company and a bank, because as I said before, those companies had a policy that they weren't allowed to use open source, but the, the development teams in those companies, they really wanted to use it. So um, these companies, the legal teams of these companies helped me make the first end user license agreement. And we closed our first deals, Andrew Binstock and I, and, but we aren't salespeople. So once we had a proof that we could sell licenses, we found uh, salespeople who were, were willing to work on commission. And that's how we made our first sales. And the first sales were licenses. So uh, if you uh, don't want to uh, obey what is in the open source license, you can uh, buy a commercial license and then you don't have to worry about the open source uh, obligations. And that worked for the first, like we had a list of uh, companies that, that had told us, yeah, we would be interested in buying a license. And the salespeople on commission, they closed all those deals. But then when the list was exhausted, suddenly the sales dropped to zero again. And we noticed that it was very hard to, to sell something that was perceived as being free because the MPL, LGPL, it's like the library general public license of the, the lesser general, general public license, allows you to, to incorporate the software in a closed source environment, in a closed source product, in a proprietary product. And so after a lot of discussion, I agreed to move from the MPL LGPL to the AGPL. And the AGPL, it's a much more viral license. It means that if you use software that is AGPL in your own software, your own software has to be AGPL too. So you cannot incorporate AGPL software and proprietary software. It's a little bit more complex than, than that, but I'm giving the, the short explanation. And when I moved from the MPL LGPL to the AGPL, a lot of people were very angry with me because they had been using IPEX for free and, and built a business around it. Uh, and they were angry that something that was available for free in the past was, uh, if they wanted to say, they could still use the old versions because you cannot change the license retroactively. But uh, if they wanted updates, they would have to pay. And they were quite, some people were quite angry with me. So there are some posts on the internet that yeah. uh, I sometimes visit and say, yeah. uh, okay. Yeah, just just to pause there for a moment. Uh, thank you for sharing all of that. By the way, it's it's uh, you. I think you 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 
put together so many complex things in 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 that in that story there um, so well and so clearly. But just to tease out a couple of threads there, um, because because we got to the point where now I, I believe you were actually like at a conference and somebody on stage basically finger wagged at you um, uh, for this decision that you made and. Um, talking about open source, for example, so for people who might not, I mean, probably everyone listening to this kind of knows what that is, but basically it means, to put it, to put it crudely, you make your program, your programming code available to people to use. You don't keep it secret, you don't hide it. Um, but then there's licensing issues. And so the, the license is basically, what are you allowed to do with that open source software? Can you just take it and do whatever you want with it? That's one version. Um, can you, you, or you can have multiple types of licenses available. One might be, you can do X and Y, but you can't do Z unless you pay. And if you pay, then you can do Z. So that's another version of it. Um, and uh, I believe in one of your talks, you talk about, um, I mean, these, these, by the way, for anyone listening who doesn't know, this stuff is extremely political in the sort of, in, the, in, the, in its own <laughs> communities. Um, uh, and I'm not actually like very well qualified to talk about it, but I've, you know, I've, I've seen it from, from a little bit of a distance and, um, and it goes back a ways now. Uh, but um, you talk in one in one video I think I watched on YouTube about um, vampires and uh, zombies, uh, and I liked it because the vampire is basically I want all your work for free and I don't want to have to pay for it, and the zombie is like I want to eat your brains and I don't want you to get paid for it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, 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 so and, when, and sorry, just 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 a minute. Like, and when I say it's political, the people who were being represented as vampires there wouldn't care but the people being represented as zombies there would say that was a very tendentious representation of their position <laughs> yeah so but i was creating a lot of value for other people but i wasn't creating any value for myself and uh people who's like the zombies the, who say intellectual property is bad we want your brain you you are not allowed to claim intellectual property um, they say well you you have to you can make money with your day job well i was doing that and from experience i know if your project is successful you cannot combine a day job with uh, supporting your product um, there are companies and and we've all seen that with open ssl heartbleed so uh, at some point there was a huge security problem caused by well, companies who used OpenSSL. And when they looked back, they saw, well, that was on New Year's, New Year's Eve. The, the, the bug was introduced on New Year's Eve and the OpenSSL people who created OpenSSL, they weren't making much money. So, so they were all doing this on a voluntary basis. If as a company, you depend on open source software, you want someone who is dedicated to that open source and who will be able to, to fix your problem. And it's very hard to do that if you combine it with, with your uh, day job. Okay, you need someone dedicated. So then they say, well, you have to sell support. But selling support, the better your software is, the harder it is to sell support. And so people will, will if they have a problem, they will agree to, sell, to, to buy support for one year. And then they say, well, a problem is fixed. <laughs> we are not going to pay. So it's not sustainable. It's, it's, there are companies who succeed in, in, in making a in creating a business with open source with support, but it's hard. And uh, for instance, I faced competition of a company called OpenLogic, and I really admired their business model. What they said was, we are the one-stop shop, one shop for open source. We 
sells support for like uh, dozens of different open source projects so that you as a customer don't have to pay support for every separate project. So that's a good business model. But as an open source developer, uh, you don't buy anything with that. Then they say, well, uh, if you don't make money with uh, support, you have to make money doing projects. But um, that's a really bad idea because what I noticed was that uh, I, I always refused to do professional services. I said, well, uh, I want to do generic work on ITEX. I want to work on the product, but I'm not going to do projects. And that was a good call because I see other companies who uh, do projects and professional services, but by doing so, they compete with companies that are much larger than them. They compete with the Northrop Governments, with, with Tata, with uh, Infosys. And uh, if, as an open source uh, vendor, if you compete with those big guys, they are not going to like you. It's better to, they are, they can be your best ambassadors. So what I did with ITEX was, uh, well, uh, in Belgium, CSC, it's not, no called, uh, well, it's, it's, it's not a Belgian company, it's, it's an international company, CSC, so Computer Science uh, Consultancy or Consultants. It's, it's changed names now to DXC, I think. That, those were very good partners in the sense that they had several government projects in Belgium and they needed PDF technology. So I worked with these guys and I said, well, if you sell licenses for, uh, to the government for us, you get the commission, but I will also help you build that project. I'm not going to write the code that, that you should write, like the, the, the business logic that is needed by the government, but I'm going to answer all your PDF related co uh, questions on condition that whatever I do in my PDF library, I can sell it to other companies too. And so like Northrop Grumman, they, they reached out to us because they wanted to win a tender also related to the accessibility to, to PDF UA. And so they said, well, to win this tender, we need this functionality. And as Northrop Grumman was a good partner of us, of ours, we said, well, we are going to drop everything and we are going to put your request at the top of our priority list. And we're going to develop that first so that it's ready in time so that you can win the tender. And again, when we make this, the source code is still ours. Uh, we can sell it to other uh, companies, but that's, that's finding your way into the ecosystem. And, and that's, that's very interesting because uh, if you would do the, their work, every hour that you spend on a project is, is time you don't spend on your own product. But if you work together with them, you get these really challenging real world problems that need solving. And that's much more interesting than just implementing a spec, not knowing if it's if what you're implementing is ever going to be used. Yeah, it's interesting. There's um, there's so many things we could talk about. I mean, you know, one whole dimension that we haven't really talked about. You, you've brought it up a little bit, but you know what it's like to be supporting uh, a successful open source project, including getting, you know, you, you become a public figure, right? And so people, I remember you, you have one story about somebody angrily contacting you and demanding an answer to something that wasn't in one of your books saying I'm on a deadline uh, and the story just gets more gets complicated from there but you know like there, there, there are these these pressures and these demands on you because people you know 
have taken it and they're using it for their own business or they've been assigned to do do something with it. And so there is a lot of pressure on there and there's a lot of, you know, stack overflow and, and stuff like that. And so, uh, but, but just in the interest of time, I think we're just going to have to leave people to the book um, to hear, to hear a lot of these stories. Um, uh, but I think I'd like to just move on a little bit um, to uh, talking about how, so, you know, I mean, and, and of course, like you brought up, you know, selling into the enterprise, selling enterprise licenses, you, the first one is like climbing a mountain. Um, that's very difficult and it can, it can, it can sometimes be impossible. And that's a whole story unto itself. Um, uh, but I wanted to move on and talk to you because one of the big parts of your parts of your book is talking about how you actually managed to get to the point where you had what they call an exit, which is um, getting your company acquired. Um, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about uh, what you did to change course from a sort of, you know, founder kind of product focused business plan to one where you're aiming to be acquired. Yeah, so there, there are many different, there's not one single reason why we wanted to exit, but uh, my wife was pulled into the company and that wasn't her vocation. She had other ambitions. And so she said, well, it would be nice if we could sell. Um, also, there was a lot of pressure on us. And uh, I, in the book, I compare Itex with the cat. Uh, you don't own a cat, the cat owns you. It felt like we didn't own Itex, it felt like Itex owned us. So we were like um, sacrificing our, our health even to, to Itex. And there was one book that was very important for me to see how to get out of that situation. And that book was The Founder's Dilemmas by Noam Wasserman. And he explains that uh, for all the decisions that you make, like uh, who are the founders, who are your hires, are you, uh, are you going to accept, uh, accept external capital? Are you going to be the CEO of your own company? For all these decisions, there, you can divide them into two types, control decisions and wealth decisions. And what I like about the book is that Noam Wasserman doesn't judge. He doesn't say control decisions are better or wealth decisions are better. He says, well, these are just two types of decisions. Uh, you need to know two things. If you go for control decisions, you know you need to know that these are the consequences. If you go for wealth decisions, you know you need to know that these are the consequences. And don't mix and match because if you mix and match, that's like a recipe for disaster. And so when we looked at our own situation, my wife and I, we saw that we had always gone for control decisions in the sense that my wife and I were the only founders, only owners. Um, we didn't accept external uh, capital when we hired people. Yeah, we were still like the only people who were allowed to sign a document, for instance. We didn't delegate that, that power uh, to other people. And we noticed that our choice for control decisions had the consequence that, yeah, we had to work more than, than if we would be able to delegate. And what was even worse, that by going for control decisions, and that's very well explained in Noah Masterman's book, by going for control decisions, we were limiting the growth uh, potential of our company. And so after reading that book, uh, we said, well, what can we do to go from control decisions to wealth decisions? And, and, and so um, pretty early, we, we said, well, an exit is not going to happen overnight. So we did it. We well. I'm kind of, uh, the chronology isn't exact, but I'm going to simplify it. In 2012, we hired uh, an M&A consultant, knowing that our company 
couldn't be solved because uh, there were too many things that we didn't know. For instance, I didn't even know what EBITDA was. So that's like uh, your earnings before interest taxes and so on. Uh, and I didn't know what, I didn't know the difference between invoiced revenue and recognized revenue. And so if you go into an M&A discussion with a potential acquirer, those are the first things that they ask. And, and if you don't know the answer, yeah, what are you doing there? <laughs> Why are you wasting the time of, of the person on the other side of the table? But we did this, this first M&A uh, ex exercise to know what was needed to prepare our company for an exit. And so in 2013, we hired uh, a consultant to help us write a business plan. And the business plan we started in 2014, so January 2014, with the goal to exit in within three years. So uh, we gave we gave ourselves three years time to exit. And so there were many things that are explained in the book. So we uh, put in place a board of directors, and so a board of directors with people who were way more experienced than I was. Uh, we uh, changed uh, accountants and so uh, so we had an accountant in the US we had an accountant in Belgium and they were like they both were able to talk English to each other or speak English to each other but they didn't speak the same language in accounting terms so we went to one of the big five so that we would have a global accountant and and so we started hiring a different type of employees so uh, like the salespeople that we used to have are people who, uh, yeah, we, we had a lot of inbound sales. So inbound sales is when people come to me and say, we, we are interested in, a, in buying a license. And then our salespeople would kind of uh, take the order and, and, and process it. But we changed to hiring more strategic salespeople. Salespeople who said, who went to companies and said, uh, yeah, how does ITEX fit into your strategy? And look, this is our strategy. This is how we can align strategies. So it, it was like, uh, that was a, a true myth. So the word metamorphosis, I think I use it a couple of times in, 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 in the book. So how I changed from being a developer to uh, a business owner to an entrepreneur. And uh, that was one of the things that I had to learn. And, and that was a very interesting uh, episode to, to, to see that all happen. And so, by putting all of this in place, uh, we, we kind of did the due diligence. So when you sell your company, uh, you, you have uh, like an agreement that the buyer will buy your company, but before everything is signed and closed, they do a due diligence. They, they, see, they look at, at, at your, your annual uh, accounts and they, they, they check everything. Oh, sorry. They check everything. And so, um, we knew that the first time that we did the M&A project, we wouldn't survive a due diligence. And so we used the three years, so 2014, 2015, 2016, we said we are going to use these three years to do a due diligence on our own company so that once we sell, the due diligence will, will be like a no-brainer so that uh, we won't have any worries. And so in 2014, we started the second, and no, 2015, we started the second uh, M&A project, and we uh, succeeded in, in selling three parts, three, three quarters of the company in December 2015. So uh, my wife sold her 50%, I sold my 25%, 
and I changed exchanged my 25% against 23.6% of like a holding company that that bought uh, Itex. And so that was like uh, yeah, preparing for an exit. It's something that they all so VCs will will tell you you always have to start with the end in mind. So 2012 was for us the moment that we looked at, well, the end goal is an exit. How are we going to put everything in place to reach that exit? Yeah, thank you very much for sharing that and all the details, including going into learning about what EBITDA is and like learning the terms of art, like due diligence and stuff like that. And just just to, one one thing I would say as, as listeners of the show know that I've got a background in from years ago now, but in, in mergers and acquisitions and, and from the investment banking world. And um, when you're thinking about getting your company acquired, it's kind of like one way of thinking, one, one sort of analogy would be um, if, you're, if you're applying for a job, you've got to put yourself in the shoes of the person on the other side of the desk, probably, right? Because, and what, one thing that's on the other side of the desk is someone having 30, 50, 100 people pass in front of them, each of which represents an opportunity to kind of hire. Um, and people who are lo looking, casting about to acquire companies, yours isn't going to be the only one that they look at. Um, and even, even if you can sort of the people you first make contact with and have lunch with or have coffee with are really impressed by you, there's going to be someone with a, you know, a, a green eye shade, uh, you know, who's going to go show me the business plan and the, the business plan doesn't have to be like super complex. It doesn't have to be like a legal commitment. This is exactly what we're going to do, but it's just like annual projections basically. Uh, and this is how much this part of the business is projected to grow. This is how much this part of the business is projected to shrink. And at the end, there's going to be an EBITDA line, earnings before interest tax, depreciation, and amortization. And then there's going to be other metrics that people use, like you know, weighted average cost of capital, the WAC, and, and, and all this kind of stuff is going to come into it. And so you basically need to make yourself presentable um, in, in, in the terms that, that they care about. Right. And, and the fortunate, fortunately, there are some sort of relatively conventional things that you can you can do, but it takes a lot of work. And in particular, you know, the, what you mentioned about due diligence, you know, in my world, that was like literally you have to pay to make sure there aren't there isn't unexploded World War II ordinance underneath the pipeline. Right. Uh, but but in, in a company, it can be like, oh, is there some weird ownership issue from the past? Is there some weird, weird debt issue from the past? Is there some weird intellectual property issue from the past? Um, and so having every, and the thing is, if you can then, it's kind of like, if you show up, if you show up to a meeting and it's like, no, no, everything's, we, we know how to talk about it. We've, we've worked it all out. You know, it's just, here's what we are. Are we a good fit to anybody who's looking to acquire a company that is just like, you've already jumped through 10 hoops for them. Uh, I, I compared it with selling houses. Uh, sometimes uh, people who want to sell a house fast and there's some mold they put a layer of paint on top of it and they do window dressing. So our goal in 2013 was, and we told this to the board, we don't want to do window dressing because that's what you see with a lot of companies. They, they make themselves big and they, they present themselves like uh, you should buy us and we are worth that much money. We explicitly demanded the board and we said, well, we don't want to do window dressing. We want to, put solid foundations under the company so that even if we don't succeed in selling the company, the company will be better after all our efforts. And so the things that we needed to do, so that was, there are several ways of professionalization in the, in the history of ITEX. That was some prof professionalization that 
um, was needed if we wanted to be uh, true to ourselves, honest to ourselves, if, if we want to be credible. Uh, because later we then had more uh, high-end customers, like huge banks, they asked the same questions. They wanted to know, uh, do you comply with this ISOs? Uh, do you, uh, who are your employees? Uh, do you have any employee? So do, do they have criminal records, stuff like that? So, so even if we wouldn't have realized an exit, all the work that we had done would still be, uh, we were ready to have those bigger customers. Yeah, things can get, get can get very serious very quickly when big money's on the line. And yeah, I, I like that. Really, really, that's a really great example about papering it over. I mean, what I would say is like, it, if you paper it over, it's probably going to be found eventually. And so don't, A, don't do it. Uh, but B, you know, it, yeah, you're just going to worry about it. And you could be there at the moment of like, at the moment of sort of a life-changing event and then have it all fall apart because you cheated basically like don't 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 even even if you're a cheater don't cheat <laughs> you, you see it happen quite often i mean i'm always surprised when i read stuff like that in the newspapers like uh, how is it even possible <laughs> yeah <laughs> that they that, that yeah. people with a certain kind of personality and stuff like that but um but yeah so anyway so that yeah that, that was really good good and um uh and uh so um, without going into all of the details, you then had, um, after, after you had you, your company got acquired, uh, things didn't exactly go so well and you, and you ended up in, in some troubles. Um, and I was wondering if you could just talk, without maybe going into any details about it, just talk generally about the experience. I mean, you basically, you, you had to give up some control and there were, as I understand it, and there were understandings that were developed that weren't necessarily honored in the way that you expected them to be might be the most diplomatic way of putting it. Yeah, I was happy to give up control in the sense that one of my uh, the things, one of the conditions to sell was that I would be able to find another CEO. So uh, I resigned as CEO and, and we found another CEO. And um, the first year was difficult in the sense that um, it was difficult to find synergies between the acquirer and iText. Um, I underestimated the, the, the culture clash. And so I sold to a South Korean company, but I think that even if it would have been a buyer from another country, there would have been similar uh, problems. I, I, so after the people read the Dutch version of my book and they came to me and they said, well, we've experienced this, the, the exact same cultural problems within the American company. And so that's something that I underestimated. But then, okay, uh, second year, we said we are going to uh, focus on ITEX and, and we had a lot of plans to further develop it. And I had good, good, good hopes that this would succeed. But then in the third year, um, yeah. so to kind of uh, summarize it, the acquirer needed cash in the sense that they have a lot of assets but they needed cash on a short term. And uh, iText was like uh, really valuable. So we had grown and, 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 and uh, well, the devaluation had, had gone up significantly. And they said, well, uh, to get cash fast, we are going to sell uh, the shares that we have in iText. And um, they kind of found a buyer, but then, um, I think that 
they wanted to kind of have me sell my shares with them, but at the price that I didn't agree with. So I, I was kind of forced to, almost forced to sell all my shares, but at the price that I thought that was like at least half or, or a third of what they were actually worth. So I went to court and uh, yeah, we, we, we had a lawsuit that lasted for one year and a half. Uh, so I was kind of, uh, I was not allowed to go to the office anymore. So I didn't get a chance to say goodbye to Vitex. So from, from the Friday I was at the office and the Monday <laughs> I was no longer allowed in the office. Uh, and so eventually uh, we settled. And so the, the new acquirer bought the shares at a price that was acceptable and that corresponded with uh, the price that was uh, uh, determined by an expert that was appointed by the court. So uh, yeah, I, I sold the remainder of my shares just before COVID broke out. So March 2, 2020. Uh, and, and I think March 16 in Belgium was the day that uh, everything was like that, that the pandemic was, was affected, although it was happening earlier already. Uh, and so, yeah, that was very hard for me the first months because yeah it's 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 like itex wasn't my baby anymore so uh in the first years of itex i saw itex as a baby and i'm never going to sell my baby but then itex grew up and and so went to puberty that was when we felt that itex owned us <laughs> and then itex got like uh adolescent and 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 i saw the exit as a marriage and and the 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 lawsuit was more like a divorce, a divorce where I was accused of, of, of trying to hurt Itex, but you, as a parent, you, you'd never want to hurt your, your child. And so I had the same feelings about the other party, like you, you're going to hurt Itex. And so I think a divorce is, is, is the best way to, to describe what happened. And uh, yeah, that, that happens. And, and uh, I'm not pointing fingers in the sense that uh, I mean, they made a business decision and that business decision, I felt like I, uh, I didn't agree with that business decision. And eventually we, we went to court and then settled. And that's probably how marriages work. <laughs> yeah. And for anyone interested, I, I definitely recommend reading, reading about this in the book. It's actually something really good that, you know, like um, these things, these things happen in business, as you say, you know, it's, it can sometimes be both people can feel completely virtuous in what they're doing and, and have their own reasons for it, but disagree about about what should be done. Um, and then sometimes those things do end up in court and uh, reading about it, about someone else's experience about it. I mean, this is one of the, the gifts the book represents, right, is, is giving people a chance to learn a little bit about that. Um, and so just moving on to the book. So uh, there, there you were, everything settled. And then uh, I, I imagine it was, I mean, maybe it was even before then, but you decided to write your book, Entrepreneur. Um, and I was wondering if you could talk, so I know that you, um, you, you, you produced the book yourself, right? And so you, 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 hired, you hired people to help and things like that. And I was just, at the end of this interview, we always like to talk about the sort of like nuts and bolts of like producing a book as a self-published author. And I, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what your approach was to that. Did you, did you just start writing and then say, um, I'm going to, figure out the sort of like production process later, or did you look into that first? Um, well, I was trained by many publications. I wrote two ITEX in Action books, and that was a team of 12 people. And 
It was a, a, a hard learning school for me. I, I described it in the book too. And um, I knew that, um, so like one of the things that Manning doesn't want an author to start writing unless he has a detailed table of contents. So you need to know exactly what is going to be in chapter 16 and chapter 20. And so you need a, a table of contents that uh, has not just the, the chapter titles, but several, several, several le levels deep. And so that's, that's how I started. Like, this is the story I want to tell. Also, why am I writing this book? So, uh, I mean, I, the first reason was as like a form of therapy. Like, I want to know what happened because when things happened, like you, you're in a roller coaster and, and you don't always uh, take a break and, 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 and look at what you've done. And so um, like I, I felt down because I didn't have the chance to say goodbye to iText, but then I, I needed to kind of get the boost and, and, and say like, but what I have done that was, that, that was, that was an incredible journey. So no need to, to be sad about it. And so, uh, but okay, you write, if you write for therapeutic reasons, the readers, the, that's, that's not of no interest to readers. So I wrote the book in Dutch first and uh, I said, well, I'm going to write it in Dutch and only produce it as a hardcover that I did everything myself and worked and, and then uh, uh, use print on demand and, 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 and sell the book. So I did the shipments of the book too. And I sold about 200 copies. Um, and so that was a test to see if, if, if my story, if people like my story and what was wrong. So what, what people liked and what people didn't like about my story. And so once that I got that feedback, I said, well, now I'm going to start writing the book in English. That's a much bigger audience, also a bigger risk. Um, and I'm going to write the book that I wanted to have read when I first started my career. If so, the, the goal of the book was, suppose that I'm just, I just graduated from college and I want to be an entrepreneur, a technical entrepreneur or developer. What, what would be a good book to read? And that's the book that I want to write. Now, knowing myself, I would not believe a word of what I, <laughs> so if I would be able to transport back in time and give that book to my younger self, my younger self would say, I don't believe you, <laughs> but, but okay, <laughs> but okay, that, that's, that's me. And, and many people are, are like that probably, but uh, like all these, these things that you mentioned that you know from your previous career, like EBITDA, recognized revenue, um, I wanted to tell my story, so the, the biography and the, the story of iText, but at these small nuggets of information, like EBITDA, this is what you need to know about it. In very simple words, I'm not, I don't have an MBA, I'm not, so go to your accountant to, to know the details, but this is like the minimum knowledge that you need to have to be able to have a conversation with your accountant, with an investor, with a customer. And so, um, that's that's what I, that was what my goal was with the book, and so writing it in English, I wanted well. That's one of, one of the things on my bucket list. I want to be published by one of the big five, like uh, um, uh, Simon and Schuster or uh, Peng Penguin Random House, and so I 
had the raw manuscript and like all the, the presentation for the book. And I presented it to different uh, literary agents because uh, these big five, they don't accept manuscripts. You have to go through a literary agent. And well, I, I want to brag in the sense that I have won the Fast 50 in Belgium. My company was the fastest growing company in Belgium. I have won the European Business Award uh, in the category in three different, uh, so I was national champion in the business award, uh, European Business Awards in three category, ca categories, among others, uh, Entrepreneur of the Year. So I'm important. So, so that's difficult for a, a nerd to, to, to tell someone that you're important, uh, and, but you need to do that to get the attention of a literary agent but somehow that wasn't, I wasn't important enough because uh, I think two thirds of the literary, literary agents didn't even reply. And one third said, well, we're not interested. So after having tried uh, the literary agents, I tried some uh, publishers, business publishers and technical publishers. And the business publishers, they were like, uh, hmm that's not going to be an interesting book uh, we're not interested so again i mean that's that's like a, a, a lesson in humility you can be a successful entrepreneur having a, a multi-million exit and not be important enough to write a business book the the people who wrote who published technical books they were more interested so for instance manning was was interested in in in, in although they although the book wasn't in the scope of what they uh, publish. We had talks about the, the, the book, but eventually they decided against publishing. And I mean, I completely understand because for them, marketing a book like that is, is, is more difficult than, than marketing iText in action, for instance. So my only option was to self-publish, but since English isn't my mother tongue and, and also the Dutch book that I did completely on my own, uh, I have a, an errata list, like a very long errata list from people who said, hey, you, have, you made a mistake there. So when creating the English version, I said, I'm going to do everything the way we did it at Manning. I'm going to hire a copy editor. I'm going to hire a proofreader. I'm going to hire a, a, a typesetter. And there's only one thing I regret that is, so when I first started looking, those were all different people. And then I found one company, The Bookshelf, who kind of combines these things and who, who offers these people. So the copy editor was someone independent, but then all the rest I was able to do with, with The Bookshelf. And if I had known The Bookshelf earlier, I would have even hired them for a developmental, to, to have a developmental editor. So a developmental editor is not someone who looks at your grammar or spelling, but who helps you develop the book now, I didn't hire a developmental editor because that was the process of writing the book in Dutch first and then rewriting it from scratch in English. Um, I knew what the boring parts, parts were. I knew what I had to cut from, from. So if you would compare the Dutch book and the, the English book, you would see that, that uh, some parts are removed completely and some parts like the parts about open source history, uh, people said, well, we didn't know that. Can you tell me more about this? And for me, all this knowledge about free software, how it started and, and open source, I think that I thought that everyone knows that. But as it turned out, there were a lot of people who weren't aware of, of those evolutions. Like uh, 
I explained the early business model of licenses earlier in, in, in our conversation, but open source is living matter and licensing and the, the business models for open source, they changed over time. And, and, and that wasn't clear in the Dutch version, but I made sure that people who read the English version can see this evolution in open source uh, in terms of licensing, but also in terms of business models. And, and so, yeah, I had, I then had the book, uh, the, so, uh, and I wanted to release it. So uh, I made a, a, a hardcover version and I didn't think it would sell well, but uh, I, I noticed now that a lot of people say, well, we want the hardcover version. So that's nice. Uh, this is the hardcover version is, is printed on blurb and distributed through the global, the Ingram global network, global retail network. The paperback is only available on Amazon. And so yeah, the moment you release your book, you have people who say, well, we don't want to buy a book on Amazon because that's putting, putting money in, in Jeff Bezos uh, pockets. And then the ebook, uh, initially I distributed it on three channels. So Amazon, um, Kobo, Kobo is Kind of, uh, so I know that in some countries Kobo is not known, Rakuten Kobo, but in Belgium and the Netherlands, Kobo is quite popular as an ebook platform. So we got to get to this. There's this very funny story um, about how about how Bruno's book Entrepreneur ended up on LeanPub, and so um, he he had uh, he had um, published something, uh, one or two projects on LeanPub a long, long time ago in the early days of LeanPub, and I think I've actually followed you ever since then for like nine years or something like that on Twitter. Um, and I, don't, I think maybe you've been following me that whole time too. And, um, and then one, one day I get a, and we didn't know each other at all. And then one day I got a, a DM from you about something funny that had happened. And so um, we might do a little bit of editing to, to this, this story to make sure no, no relevant names are mentioned. But uh, I was wondering if you could tell that, that story about what you reached out to me about. Well, apparently there are some uh, print on demand services and some ebook services who refuse manuscripts that have uh, names of competitors in them. And LeanPub was one of the competitors of such a, a service. And so my, my, my ebook was rejected. And uh, yeah, I, I eventually succeeded in getting it published anyway, but it got rejected. And that's, so I shared that story with you. And that's when you said, well, uh, you can publish your book on, on LeanPub too. And so, uh, for me, LeanPub, I, I didn't know that that you had to bring your own bring your book uh, module. For me, it's it's like an ideal platform because no other platform allows me to create targeted coupons. So uh, with with the previous book for like journalists, I, I sent an email with an EPUB in it, but then you don't know what. Well, it's it's like. Um, are they going to even open that email? With LeanPub, I, I, I've already created a couple of uh, free co uh, coupons to get the, the book for free. And then you can see, ah, he downloaded it, so he must be interested. And also the, 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 the coupons with uh, like special actions, it's very, I, I don't know how to do that with other platforms. And, and yeah, the more, for me, the most important thing is to get the book out as, as, as much as possible. So. So having this, this option for coupons, that's, that's really interesting. And so uh, to go back, so I wrote some books. Uh, so 
the first books I wrote were for Mang publications, but um, there's a problem if you write for a publisher, you're no, you, you're no longer free to do with your book what you want, in the sense that uh, suppose that we want to give the book away for free to our customers, we had to buy coupons, we, we got them at half price, and then give those coupons to our customers. But there are several problems related to it. The coupons had an expiry date. So we had to make sure that we handed out the coupons fast enough and we could return them for new coupons. But then our customers, sometimes the expired date was passed and our customers said, well, you tried this coupon and it doesn't work. So that's very annoying. But what I found even more annoying was that if you give these, this, if you give these coupons to your customers, your customers need to purchase the book from Manning and they need to give their email address. So uh, we were giving, we were like feeding the, 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 the leads for Manning. So all our customers' emails went to Manning. And I know that this also happens with LeanPub, but with LeanPub, I've never had any spam or stuff like that. So, so um, I, we did have some complaints from customers in the past who said, well, uh, we bought your book uh, we used the voucher to get your book for free and now we're getting all these mails about other books <laughs> so, so yeah that's just, something uh, yeah thanks for saying that this just yeah just uh, i've got to be yeah so just to be clear about what 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 um what bruno was talking about is we have the ability to make coupon links these coupon links have you unique urls and you can put you so you could name it something like you know um entrepreneurs conference or something like that right and then so you can you can look in your royalties section in the admin of your LeanPub book, you know, on, on in the browser and see, oh, this many people, you know, actually, you know, use the coupon and stuff like that. And that can be really interesting when it comes to emails um, and, and people, authors use that in all kinds of really cool ways. And that is a relatively unique feature to LeanPub. Um, uh, but uh, yeah, with respect to emails, yes, you do need to create an account on LeanPub um, uh, when, you, when, you, when you get a book from us. And the reason for that is that, one of the reasons for that is that, um, LeanPub books can be updated at any time. And many LeanPub, and for people who don't know, many LeanPub books are written in progress as well. And so if you kind of bought an, if you bought an incomplete book, but you didn't have an account, then you couldn't get an update. And if you, if you, if you bought a book that then got, was complete, but then got typos fixed or a new introduction or, or something like that, then you also wouldn't be able to access that. But we absolutely do not add you to, to sales lists when you create a lean pub account. We do, we do have sales lists. We, we do have newsletter sales and stuff like that, but it's all opt-in. It's, it's all opt-in. Yeah, well, I, at Manning, it's also opt-in, uh, but uh, we, we had customers complain about it. And so, yeah, I, I used that feature. So as an author, I wrote several books about iText on LeanPub. And uh, indeed, I could send a message to everyone who had bought a book or who had uh, registered for the book, but I didn't see who was registered. So I could send messages to my audience without having my audience uh, email addresses. And that's that's like a, a level of comfort that you give to your uh, to the iText users, knowing that if they buy the book, they are not going to have some salespeople going after them. Yeah, it's, a, it's actually a really, yeah, you're touching, I mean, we, 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 you know, in the interest of time and for not, you know, ranging too far away from the central conversation, but um, it is, it is actually a really interesting thing because yeah, one, one thing we've, we've sort of done is like when someone, uh, 
you know, the challenge of sort of building maybe the, maybe the first platform for like in progress publishing, you know, not serial, but like actually like the books in, you know, being worked on when you buy it. Um, we wanted a device for letting the author communicate to a reader. Oh, I've just released a major new version. Here are the changes, blah, blah, blah. But of course we didn't want, you have to give up your email address to an author in order to receive a message from them. So authors can, you, you can opt in to receive these update messages from authors, but unless you choose to share your email address with them specifically, they can communicate with you without ever seeing your email address. But it's just, it's just one of the funny things about being in the, you know, in the sort of like part of the, the shift to e-commerce in the last, I guess it's like almost 30 years now or something like that. But there are some people out there in the selling stuff online world who, who feel entitled to get the email address of everyone who buys their stuff. Um, and that's just something I've always found so curious. I mean, maybe I'm too old or something like that, but you know, the, the idea, the idea of, of, of being indignant that you can't get everybody's email address is just so far from where my intuitions take me. Uh, but, but, but it is, but it is, you know, there is, there is a whole hustling kind of content creator, independent content creator, you know, yeah, and for us, it, for us, it was interesting because so what we did was we put a very small price on the books. So for people who weren't a customer, but LeanPub also gives you the opportunity to give away books for free. So for customers, we gave a code that they could download the, the book for free. And if you weren't a customer, well, then you had to pay. I don't know how much, how much we charge, but it was like, five dollars ten dollars that that order of magnitude and so this kind of uh that that formed a nice balance if you want the book for free well become a customer if you don't want to become a customer well and pay for the book <laughs> um the uh the last question i always ask uh on these in these interviews if the um guest has published a book on lean pub is if there was one feature we could build for you or one terribly annoying problem or bug we we could fix for you can you think of anything you would ask us to do um it has been too long since i worked so since i created the book on on lean pub so probably many of the things that bugged me uh are fixed now i remember that i struggled with um uh getting the layout the way i wanted it so uh like uh yeah i i, I want to have this on the next page but I won't. I don't want to add extra space stuff like that. Uh, so I always had to generate the PDF multiple times. But of course, uh, that was because, as a PDF guy, I was I wasn't that much into EPUB. And like for the book now for uh, entrepreneur, I chose to publish it only as EPUB and .mobi and not as PDF. One person complained about it. He said, well, I bought your book and I asked for a refund because it wasn't available as PDF. But um, I think that PDF, uh, that would lead us too far if I would go into that. <laughs> right, <discussion. laughs> right. Okay. But, uh, but so uh, as for your question, are there things that we could uh, improve? Um, yeah, it's been too long for me since I last created the book on LeanPub. And now I'm just having my first experience with uh, bringing my own book to LeanPub. I do know that uh, the people I worked with at the bookshelf were very interested and they said, well, and uh, is this only for technical books or do they also have other books? <laughs> and so, yeah, so we'll see. Yeah, well, thank you very much for that. And if you, if you ever do 
run into any roadblocks or think of anything that you think would be cool or interesting or, or that you'd like to do and you as you're promoting the book or, or, or spreading the word about it, please, please don't hesitate to reach out to me and uh, let me know. And yes, the answer, the answer to the bookshelf is yes, there are non-technical books on LeanPub. Um, uh, it's, just, it's, it's just the particular nature of in-progress selling and stuff like that um, is, and, is one of the reasons it's been more popular with technical book authors. What, what I noticed when I created the iTex books is that if you have a technical book with a lot of code, it's really the, the best way to create a book. So what we even did was, so I used Markdown and uh, Stack Overflow use, uses Markdown. So what I did was uh, I changed our website so that it would accept Markdown instead of HTML. And so I copy and pasted my answers to questions on Stack Overflow to our website. And in our website, I used Drupal so you can create a book. And then I had a feature that I could export a zip file from our website so that I could unzip it on uh, Dropbox and hit the button on LeanPub and my book was created. So it was all integrated. So I, instead of, of working in, the, in a text editor, I created the book as the, the book functionality in Drupal. I created all the chapters and so on. And then uh, yeah, the only thing I had to do was hit the button, unzip it, create the PDF, the EPUB and the .mobi. And uh, so that, that was a really cool thing. But uh, when, I, when I looked at uh, LeanPub to, to, before I started writing Entrepreneurs, I noticed that a lot of things had changed, but uh, since I knew that I would involve a team of many other people, like, like the proofreader, the copy editor and so on, um, I decided to use Word because Word is the tool that they know. They are not familiar with, with those tools. But I'm, I'm going to, re to return to LeanPub to see what, what's possible and, and what I could do more. Yeah, thanks very much for sharing that. We always love hearing stories because we often have sort of, you know, very technical authors. They often have their own processes and stuff like that. And it's always wonderful to hear, to hear the details of how, it, of how, they, of how they set things up. Um, well, uh, Bruno, uh, thank you very much um, for taking the time out of what I'm sure was a beautiful evening uh, in Belgium to, to talk to me and to talk to our audience about your book, Entrepreneur, and your experience uh, putting yeah, together and uh, selling a successful company. Thank you for promoting the book. As, uh, I've seen the sales already, <laughs> so <laughs> uh, it, it has an effect, so thank you. Thanks very much. And as always, thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of the Front Matter Podcast. If you like what you heard, please rate and review it wherever you found it. And if you'd like to be a LeanPub author yourself, please check out our website at leanpub.com. Thanks.